welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we engage you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and often ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Raj Negum, consulting urologist at the Royal Surrey NHS Foundation Trust and the Focal Therapy Clinic. And we're going to discuss how the changing narrative around aging is impacting men's experience with prostate cancer. Raj, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Good afternoon, Claire. Thanks for having me. You're becoming quite the veteran in these discussions, so I'm just going to charge right in. Um, and I want to kick off by referencing a very impactful piece that was reported last week by the, by the Times, for our listeners, the Times of London. And it was a big investigative study that basically showed that there was significant age discrimination of COVID patients over the last year, which has brought ageism and care of the elderly into focus. I mean, the reaction to this was was profound. I mean, even entering the chambers of parliament and other places where it was really, really talked about. So I want to ask you, do you think that this raised awareness that this investigative study has brought will have an impact on clinical practice? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the COVID pandemic, if anything, has magnified a situation that you know many of us felt already existed. The concept of ageism, uh, as we have discussed, was effectively made unlawful back in 2012 through the uh, National Health Service uh, in the UK. And this is because there are prevailing attitudes towards uh, increasing age, guiding our medical decisions and management. And uh, it probably has not caught up with the fact that people are living longer lives and healthier lives, and yet we are using chronological age as a surrogate for deciding on even whether we investigate people based upon their age, uh, let alone uh, treat them. So yes, mm. I think you're right that what COVID has illustrated rather uh, starkly, in my view, that ageism does exist and that this is sanctioned at the highest level. I mean, when the pandemic was in full flow, you know, we had sort of uh, nice guidelines, which are national bodies, on how we should decide whether somebody gets a ventilator and so on. And obviously age, together with comorbidities related to age, played a huge role in that. Indeed. So, uh, again, you've, you've mentioned a few things that I want to pick up on in more detail. I mean, while the report was focused on COVID patients, you know, others have come forward as a response to describe similar practices and attitudes in other areas, in, including prostate cancer. And I know you and I have previously discussed this. So I, I'd like to ask you if you can illustrate, if you can describe in some detail some of the patient situations that you've seen where ageism has compromised care. Do you think this is a moment to harness public interest and support around ageism and demand change? Yes. So obviously the, the field that I'm in of uh, prostate cancer, age or ageism, if you like, has played a significant role over the years in, uh, in deciding management of such patients. And if you want to break it down, I would describe uh, ageism in this field as a sort of nihilistic approach really, which uh, ignores the individual circumstances, their state of health, their outlook on life, and so on. And we as doctors are all guilty of it to some extent, insofar as we have developed a slightly parochial attitude towards elderly patients. And therefore, these terms such as watchful waiting and active surveillance have come into being, i.e. offering basically 
uh, no treatment. And of course, I've come across several patient situations like this, one which I only saw last week with a chap of 73 years old, very fit and well, very active, who had been told in his uh, locality, oh, nobody will offer you surgery at your age uh, for prostate cancer. Hmm. Of course, surgery is one of the curative uh, treatments. Uh So he was effectively being put down the hormone therapy route, which Uh would give him several side effects, which would limit his activities. He runs huge businesses still and is very active. Uh And yet he had been told on the grounds of his age, his chronological age, that uh, he would be denied a curative treatment. Hmm. And I I know you've, you've said with regard to hormone therapy that this has been something you've seen unfortunately, at a large scale during COVID. Do you you see it in any other ways, whether it's surgical procedures or or you mentioned watchful waiting? COVID pandemic time was obviously a highly specific time and was very unusual, of course, in that uh, all surgery and all radiation treatments and all chemotherapy treatments were halted uh, at that time. We knew so little about the virus. Mm -hmm. And a surrogate for that was ineffectively to try and buy time Uh, Mm -hmm. was to place men on hormonal therapy. And I've come across so many men where the side effects of such treatment were not even discussed. Mm -hmm. And they were just told that, you know, you should have this. So uh, those patients who would have been suited for a radical treatment without any hormones were denied this. So that was a specific time. But even now, you know, hormones are still being used as a marker of effectively saying, well, all right, if you want treatment, this is what we'll give you because you are elderly. But that denies them the chance of a curative treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously compromises their lifestyle, usually, which, which actually leads me into, you know, some of the behavioral and attitudinal shifts we've seen. You know, the COVID experience has exposed, I think, attitudes towards aging. I'm kind of putting these words in inverted commas, aging, elderly, vulnerable. We hear them every day, which many of our patients view differently or in some cases even reject in their own lives you know, as you've indicated, this, this gentleman you were just referring to at 73 is thriving, deeply engaged in an active life um, when their prostate cancer is diagnosed, but yet they are treated as elderly or vulnerable, back to those terms. So how do we begin to address this disconnect? Those three words that you've chosen are very interesting, aging, elderly, vulnerable. Uh, all of them, in my view, sort of carry negative connotations. Indeed. Now. And certainly in the COVID era, which we are still in, those would be words that would put fear uh, into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a slightly older populations because mm-hmm. they will uh, fear being treated in a certain way. So I think that those words really do not resonate with uh, a lot of men and women uh, mm-hmm. nowadays. I think we, we have to remember that life expectancy has changed and has improved uh, over the years, although less so over the last 10 years or so. And uh, in the UK, for example, a, a man who lives to the age of 65 can expect to live another 19 years. A man who lives to the age of 75 can expect to live another 12 years. So, you know, we're not talking about people who are necessarily going to die out in their 70s. In fact, the greatest number of deaths in the UK now happen in their 80s Mm -hmm. rather than in their 70s. So there's been a shift in longevity from that point of view. And therefore, these loose definitions of ageing, elderly and vulnerable uh, are no longer valid for men and women who reach the age of 70. No. Um, no. And all COVID has done is really magnified 
this, I think, that this does go on in, in medical care, either subconsciously or consciously. Exactly. And that, that's why, I, you know, I wonder if this is a moment to really bring this out because, you know, it is happening. And as, as you say, it's, it's instilling fear. I think that, you know, you, you chose that word. Mm. But an, another word you just use is longevity or longevity, however we choose to pronounce it. And, you know, there is a, a movement around this. Um, and by that, I mean a collection of both researchers and activists and campaigners who are using the term longevity to show that longer, better lives are possible through advances in medicine, as well as shifts in attitudes, behaviors. Do you think something like that has a role to play in supporting men? and ensuring that they get appropriate treatment yes. for prostate cancer. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And uh, although I've just quoted you some uh, figures regarding life expectancy, mm -hmm. um, we now recognize uh, healthy years of life expectancy uh, as well. And we know that those numbers are increasing as well. So it's not just the age that you live at, it's how many healthy years you're going to have you know, beyond the age of 65 or 75. Is what you're referring to the, the quality index or the quality measurement? Is that what you're, you're referring to? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, there are lots of different measures in terms of measuring quality of life. Quailies, if you like, are a surrogate marker of you know, people living uh, quality added life years, if you like. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And those sorts of uh, markers are you know, just as valid as the life expectancy years. There are ge some geographical variations in that, and there are some ethnic uh, and racial variations. Uh, so it's not across the board. And even within the UK, we know that although uh, healthy quality years are improving in most areas, there are one or two pockets geographically in the UK where that is not so obvious. But yes, you're right. To come back to your point regarding the longevity movement and, mm -hmm. and so on, I agree with you that this is a moment coming out of COVID whereby we can apply it to other medical conditions, you know, such as prostate cancer. There are lots of charities for the elderly, prostate cancer charities and, and so on, who should be perhaps harnessing this and advising their men, you know, who are over a certain age, exactly what is available to them and what should be required uh, mm -hmm. often when they have their consultations following their diagnosis. And really trying to address or indeed even cancel out this fear factor and instead giving men positivity that, you know, they are likely to live long lives based on certain metrics that you've, you've referenced and that a prostate mm -hmm. cancer diagnosis should be considered in that context. Totally, totally. Like I said, there are charitable organizations. There are other means of trying to improve this, not least, of course, patient empowerment, empowering patients to ask for certain things. Say, look, I might be 70, I might be 71 or whatever, but you know, why can't I be treated like a 50-year-old? Because Absolutely. Uh, I live yeah. my life like a 50-year-old uh, and so on. And, yeah. and maybe this will change in time. I, I think that there are several factors which may promote this change, not least of which is the extension of the retirement age. And I think as people continue to work for longer, uh, which they'll be required to do well into their 60s and so on, then maybe certain attitudes will change and the definitions of terms like elderly should change. So final question, could you sum that up in a, in a piece of advice you might give to, to men over 70 about engaging with their doctors? 
I mean, I think the first thing that such men need to recognize is that there are long-held cultural attitudes within the medical profession and beyond regarding aging and, and so on. And some of the words that you've used will resonate with the medical profession, mm-hmm. unfortunately, rather than with patients themselves. I think that waiting for cultural or behavioral change, you know, will take a long, long time. Uh, it will come, but it will take a long time. You can speed that up, you know, through legislation sometimes. Uh, But I think patient empowerment is the big key and Uh patient knowledge. So if patients are aware that actually because I've reached 70, I may not be offered certain treatments. I may Uh not be offered uh, the opportunities uh, for modern day diagnostics uh, and so on that A, I should learn about these and and, um, find out information about them and then absolutely demand. Say, look, you know, I really do want to undergo investigation. I really Mm -hmm. want to have my MRI. I really want to have my biopsies. And sure, if I do have the type of cancer that I'm just going to live with and die from, then I can make my judgment at that point in time. But Mm -hmm. I would like to know that in the first place. And then, of course, if I need treatment, then I should be aware of all the treatment options, not just those which are widely available, which are often radical treatments, which is why certain doctors parochially sort of try and protect, in inverted commas, their patients from such radical treatments because they're deemed to be older than other patients. So I think that as long as they are given all that information, which does take time, and it's true that the NHS doesn't always have that much time. A lot of my second opinions that I see, uh, it's just a case of going over all of the information that Mm -hmm. they have, but that nobody has actually sat down Mm -hmm. with them to explain exactly what is available. Mm -hmm. So I think that the quickest win is, if you like, patient empowerment and patient information and knowledge and being able to engage with their doctors appropriately. Raj, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I, I think this is an issue that's certainly not going to go away. And I hope that, you know, we will be a force in, in bringing it out there and working in partnership with some of these organizations that you've mentioned. So thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much. A transcript of this interview is available on our website, where you can also access information and insight on living with prostate cancer. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>